Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic D Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Today, my guest is Sharon Asik, and we're going to be talking about her book, Making Home, Adapting Our Homes and Our Lives to Settle in One Place. Making Home is about improving life with the real people around us and the resources that we already have. Now, you know, it's interesting how there's a very big push to get off the fossil fuels and to take advantage of renewable resources. However, there is a big, a, a big point that people are missing, and that is to conserve. There are many things that we can do that are not necessarily going to cost us money, but are actually going to save us money. And these things involve uh, our home life, our career, and even spending time with friends and family. But um, it's it's a very interesting pers- uh, perspective that many people just seem to forget about, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Sharon's book. So I would like to welcome to the show Sharon Astic. Good afternoon, Sharon. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Sharon, can you share with the audience a little bit about yourself and also your work with the ASPO USA? Yeah. Um, I'm a small farmer. I'm a writer and a teacher and a mother of a highly variable number of children. I have four sons, um, and we're foster parents at all. So every once in a while we have as many as, you know, nine or ten kids in the house. Um, at the moment, we've got five, but one of them's a newborn, so I'm not sleeping very much. Um, <laughs> and my, I started out thinking about energy issues on a purely personal level. You know, I started uh, this question of, well, how are we going to not destroy the climate? How are we going to have a decent life? How can we do these things? Is it really impossible to do so much, to live with so much less? You know, because that was the story that I was hearing was, oh, no, none of us can really do this. And so my husband and I sort of set out for this project of what would it be like to live on a fair share of the world's resources. And we managed to cut our energy use down pretty dramatically. Um, We now use about um, less than a fifth of what the average American household uses, which is pretty good given that our household size is is ordinarily somewhere between double and triple the average American household. And um, we still have more, more to go and lots of changes to make. And we also sit down to say, okay, how much of our food can we grow? How many, you know, how much of the things, we, how many of the things we need can we produce for ourselves? And what we found along the way is that this is just enormously fun. And it's created a kind of a life that I think 
has higher quality than the one we had before and um, a lot of pleasures that I had never known were out there. And we've just had a really wonderful time doing it. And, of course, I, like everybody else you know, in the world these days, I started writing about it because there's no, no thoughts out there that are, go unblogged. And, you know, mm. so, and from there it's sort of other people have joined in. It's been really wonderful. Now, it's interesting that in the 50s there was a big push for people to have more leisure time, and everything began to be processed. Everything that we thought was too time-consuming was easily replaced with a machine, with uh, some sort of um, mechanism or service, what have you, that could do something that we didn't necessarily, quote, need to do. And what's interesting is that we went from a society where we had a really good quality lifestyle and we traded it for all these different processes which, in essence, contributed to the decline of our health, the decline of our just family life in general, and just the decline in communication within our own community. And it's just very interesting what you and your husband are doing because it's almost as if there's a big movement where people are starting to recognize or have been recognizing, actually, the fact that we've gotten to this point where, okay, we made a huge mistake. We should have never substituted so many of these things that basically create a good quality life. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the problem is, you know, we came out of World War II with this enormous industrial infrastructure for, you know, I mean, the language of World War II in the old posters is production, production, production. Mm. And, you know, here we were pushing to win a war and then and employing people to win a war, and then you have a huge body of returning GIs, you have the factory infrastructure, and we repurpose that to create modern life. I mean, and quite literally, I mean, um, many of our agricultural chemicals came out of the um, weapons factories, um, any number of the sort of domestic processes were repurposed from the, you know, old military infrastructure. So what you had was basically a problem of how do you, does a society make use of all this crazy industrial infrastructure that we've built to win the war? And the answer to that was, well, we create a lot of needs that we never had, and we transform um, society in a lot of ways. And, you know, I mean, there are things about industrial infrastructure that I really value. As a woman with many, many children who cloth diapers, I love my washing machine, and um, the electricity for that will be the very last thing in life that I ever give up. Um, on the other hand, um, I know how to wash clothes by hand. And what I find is that it's not as onerous as people think. Onerous as people think. It is more onerous than I would ideally like to integrate into my world. But we have come with all the language of convenience and so much better than homemade and speed and, and labor saving. We often overestimate the amount of labor that's actually saved and underestimate the cost, environmental cost, personal cost, lifestyle cost of what we've achieved. So I think part of it has been sorting out, well, what did we really save? What's really worth it? Mm. You know, what really matters here? And what you find is that some things really are worth it. For, but that varies by family and household and things. And a lot of this, honestly, really turns out doesn't save a lot of labor. Um, there's been Juliet Shore, the um, professor, shows, for example, that women spend as much time cleaning floors now with vac modern vacuum cleaners as they did when all they had were handmade brooms. And the re reason for that is because standards changed, and so did um, 
the, you know, we developed deep pile carpeting, and thus we didn't actually save any labor. Um, there are a whole bunch of things like that where we assume that we're saving money and labor and time by not doing things ourselves. And when you actually sit down and figure it out, you find out that it's actually not all that difficult to do it by hand. Yeah, now we can do it with the Swiffer. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, and the thing is, I mean, there are a few things that represent tr- really transformative labor-saving technologies, but the vast majority of new technologies really are transformative in the same way. I think that's an excellent point, uh, especially since we have really done a great job of trying to convince ourselves that, yeah, we went from doing things the old-fashioned way, and now we have these new gadgets and mechanisms that are supposed to make life so much easier. And the bottom line is is that how much time are we really saving? What are we doing that's really that much better? And the bottom line is is that now, uh, instead of using all these chemicals and whatnot that are supposed to instantly uh, remove a stain or do this or do that, now we're going back to basics all over again, and why? Because there's less environmental impact. It's also better for our own health, but also it's cheaper. And the bottom line is, is that we should have never taken that leap forward because now we have to basically take two steps backwards in order to really get to where we should be. And you point out in the book that we should really take a look at generations to come. Now, why is it that people don't like to do that? I mean, I think that's the smart way to go. Yeah, it's a hard thing, and it's it's funny because, you know, historically, that's what people do, is whether you're a parent yourself or whether you're, you know, connected to other generations in other ways, which almost everybody is, the idea is ultimately that we're supposed to bear the hard things. We're supposed to endure the difficulties to make life better for the future. Well, the problem is that we switch the narrative around. Now, you know, what you want is more for your children, not better necessarily. We've changed the way we think of that. So we think of better for your children is, you know, you save up to get them more stuff. Well, how many TVs can anybody have? How much stuff can anybody have? I mean, the reality is that we have actually shifted to a situation where with climate change and environmental degradation, giving your children less, in some ways. Um, that doesn't mean that we deprive them of everything. It just means giving, we give them well-made and valuable and things that are really worth having, like access to nature and, you know, wealth and a, and a worthwhile education that shows them what's really important. That, in some ways, giving them less becomes more important, but we have a hard time shifting our mind around that idea that instead of giving them more things and more wealth, that what we really need to do is find different kinds of wealth and um, a new definition of what qualifies as more. It's very interesting when you look at TV. You think about the programs that are on TV and the manufactured content that is being pushed on society, not to mention the fact that you have services that will allow you the luxury of being able to stop the program that you're watching and then as you walk into another room be able to pick up the the program right where you, you left off in the last room. I mean, some of these technologies are just amazing, but the thing is is that the quality of the content that's on TV today is not what it was 20, 30 years ago. And now it's just interesting that people have, to a certain degree, 
been reaching for nature through technology and other artificial means because they're not getting enough direct contact with nature. Uh, you see it with magazines. You see it on TV where you know people can watch all these shows about uh, everything from gardening to eco-travel, and yet if they simply take a local tour in their own neighborhood or in their state, they can find so much uh, reward in just physically doing something instead, but yet they opt to find it on the TV. And I just think that that is the big irony. Uh, Sharon, I just want to take a moment to take a call. Um, bear with me one moment. Hi, do you have a question for Sharon? Um, I do, yes. I'm in the middle of um, building our own home at the moment, and we've gone through multiple different options, um, basically with regards to trying to use a log burner, um, heat, so different different types of fuel saving ways to basically support the support the environment, which is really important for us, which is why we bought this book. So my questions really are around keeping warm and keeping cool with regards to um, what she's written in the book and if she's got any tips on how she's managing it. I, mean, I appreciate you're in America, whereas I'm over here in the UK, so the climate is slightly different. But financially, it would be impossible for us to go down some of those lines. So I was wondering if she had any tips or advice. So the question is mostly about keeping warm and keeping cool in environmentally sustainable ways. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think really has to shift is the way we think about um, heating and cooling. You know, we have for a very long time now imagined that heating and cooling is something you do to buildings. But in fact, we're the ones who experience hot and cold for the most part. I mean, our produce does and a few other things do. And so I think the first way to save energy doing that is to think about heating and cooling yourself rather than the building or the uh, comparatively small space around you. Um, You know, the air... A warm, a warm room that your family can retreat to and things like that rather than imagining keeping everything at 72 degrees all of the time. Um, so there's a lot of nice techniques, you know, and it's very, been very hot here this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of, there's a lot of nice techniques for cooling your body or cooling, you know, warming your body that I think people don't always take advantage of. I mean, really simple things. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the hot water bottle, um, which is a technology that went completely out of style in the modern era but just makes getting into a bed in a, in a cold winter just incredibly cozy. Um, or in terms of personal cooling, you know, the bandana, wet bandana that's been um, stuck in the freezer and tied around your neck or just wetted in cold water. Um, I mean, I find that it's much easier in some ways to adapt to more moderate temperatures in your house if you don't try to keep, um, in your whole life actually, if you don't try to keep your entire environment at the same temperature all the time, because our bodies do adapt to hotter and colder weather and we tolerate them better if we don't move constantly in and out of air conditioning or um, out of heavily heated areas into really cold ones. And you've experienced this if you've ever experienced, you know, going out of a very, very warm house into a, on a cold day or, you know, outside, you know, after sitting in air conditioning all day. The heat just feels like it slaps you in the face, whereas mm. if you live in a more moderate mm-hmm. environment, you know, you, ju- you adapt better. Okay. Now, in regards to your home, do you have any suggestions that you can make for people who do live in a rural environment uh, as far as just being able to take advantage of the elements uh, and keeping their homes either cool or warm uh, during, you know, the peak seasons. 
Well, it isn't viable for everybody. You have to have a, you know, if you have wood or other um, viable biomass near you, often, you know, that's a good solution. Um, it's not without emissions, it's not without consequences, and you need to make sure that you're not deforesting um, an area. That's not an option for everybody. In much more densely populated areas, um, wood isn't often a good heat source. Um, I tend to think that the most important thing for everybody, no matter where you live, is as much as you can afford to, insulate, 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 you know, caulk those windows, you know, do all those little ceiling projects that seem like they're way too big a project when you add them all up, but really are very small if you do a little bit at a time, because it makes a huge difference in how comfortable you are and in how much of the energy you're building is just throwing outside. Thank you. I think one of the other things that people tend to forget is the cost factor. When it comes to doing these little minor repairs, it's interesting that people will put them off for a very long time until it comes down to the expense where not doing it becomes more of a financial burden than anything. And I'm finding that there are many people out there uh, that will wait until they're financial situation is so tight where they don't have a choice. They have to really buckle down and make a list of all the different projects. And it's unfortunate that it takes that type of pressure to get people to start moving and doing the right things. Yeah, and it's a difficult, it puts you in a really difficult bind. I mean, when oil prices spiked up to $145 a barrel back in 2007 um, and early 2008, um, what I saw around here was, you know, the northeast U United States uses most of the heating oil in the United States because there were no gas pipelines built out into rural areas. So while heating oil is very common in the rest of the United States, it's very common out sometimes 70 or 80 percent of housing. And the question here was, are we all going to freeze to death? I mean, what are we going to do to heat our homes with? And what you ended up having these issues is people spending all of their money trying to buy heat in these highly variable and fluctuating energy prices who then now can't afford to insulate to reduce their costs. Um, you know, and the, the nightmare situation in there is what the advertisement that I saw around here was people put out signs saying, we sell coal stoves. Well, you know, millions of private coal stoves are a recipe for an absolute disaster. So unless we respond to these problems and we respond both personally, I mean, if we have a little extra money, put some into insulation and reducing our costs and getting comfortable living at a cooler temperature, but also collectively and fund things like, you know, like light heat programs that allow lower income people to insulate their houses. Unless we do this work, we're headed for a real disaster. Now, in the book, you mention uh, about a period whether or a period where you're kind of prepping uh, just in case you have the uh, flashlights, you have all the the extra supplies and whatnot. It's kind of interesting that people go to so many extremes to prepare for not having electricity or power, what have you, or not having enough food, and yet we still consume too much. It almost seems like it's it's an exercise that we subject ourselves to instead of just saying, okay, well, you know something, let's just cut back entirely and see what excess we can trim and just make changes in our own habits so that we don't necessarily have to get used to being without. 
Yeah, I mean, I find it much more useful in some ways to adapt my life to work without electricity as much as possible. Now, I do use electricity. That's how I write, and, you know, we have an electric bill and all those things. But we, it is substantially lower than average. And, I mean, I find that when the power goes out, rather than, you know, stocking up on gasoline to run a noisy, smelly generator that can cause all sorts of problems, it's much easier to adapt my home to work with a lower energy, older, more old-fashioned infrastructure. That said, most of us have the infrastructure that we inherited. So I think a lot of us don't even think about it. You know, it's we heat with X because that's the kind of furnace our house came with. Or we heat or we use we eat at Y because that's what the supermarkets near us sells. We don't haven't been in the habit of thinking about these things as something more than personal choices, but as decisions that we can really use to make an enormous difference in the world. I mean, 300 million people in the United States and 7 billion people around the world, not all of whom have equal consumer powers, but many of whom are spending money. Every time we make a choice, we're making an environmental vote and for the kind of future that we want. And I think most people don't think about it in those terms. We're, we're habitual folk. I think if more people took responsibility for how their food is grown instead of just assuming that, oh, well, you know, something we could go to the supermarket and pick it up there. If you take that responsibility and you actually do something about it, whether it's a, a large vegetable garden or even a container garden. I remember living in the city and having a, a firescape garden, and that was basically how I supplemented uh, my income <laughs> by growing my own vegetables, selling some to some neighbors when I could. I mean, it wasn't uh, this magnificent garden, but you now you'd be surprised what you can grow in containers. But the bottom line is, is that if people take more responsibility, I think to a certain degree it will help us in many ways, especially that fear that we are going to be without because you're taking action and you're taking matters into your own hands. And by taking that responsibility, you're also not wasting because you're really valuing the food that you do have. I mean, it, I had this conversation with um, actually another guest about the amount of food that we waste here in the United States, and it's just ridiculous how much food is wasted, whether it's at a supermarket or at um, the local um, local restaurants or just even in our own kitchens. I mean, how many kitchens actually have zero waste? That's a very big problem. And I think that when you take responsibility for how the food is grown and you think, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to use this part of the plant or what have you, and then the excess you use for different things, it's amazing how you make things stretch. And especially living on a farm, I'm sure that that's something that is considered each and every day. Yeah, until about a week and a half ago, I had seven boys in my house. So making <laughs> stretch is a really important project here. Um, it's like Huns every day at, mm. at mealtime, um, you know, ransacking the kitchen. Um, but, you know, it's um, I agree with you. And I think that people, again, underestimate the power of small-scale home production. I mean, yes, we need more local farms, but we also need more local gardeners. And it's worth remembering that in 1944, um, U.S. Victory Gardens produced the same amount of produce that was produced in all the produce farms in the United States. So we're talking home gardens equal um, all of the um, fruit and vegetable farms in the U.S. So all those little gardens, and the average one of those gardens was quite small. Um, 
you know, it was the aggregate project of all these people participating in the food system that made such an enormous difference. Um, and I think that's the, that's the reality. Is it may seem like your little balcony garden, and I have fondly remember my little balcony gardens, um, may not seem like a big deal, but it's a huge deal because not only that, gardens proliferate. They have an amazing power. You know, everybody cares about food. You know, I wrote books about our, I've written books about our energy predicament, um, and, you know, when I write those books, I get people on the radio and people argue with me. When I write books about food, people just want to talk about food. Everybody is, finds food fascinating. They care about it. They love it. They want to eat well. Everybody is excited by food. There's nothing like growing food to really engage people with this, prop, this very problematic agricultural system we have. Let me ask you a question in regards to having so many kids, especially on the farm. Do you find that when the kids are more connected with nature, they have more of a high-quality lifestyle than the kids that are basically sitting in front of the TV playing video games, not even communicating with one another, and basically self-absorbed in something that is, for the most part, mechanical? Yeah, and I get to see it in really interesting ways. I mean, kids who come into foster care have usually been abused or neglected pretty badly, um, and they're pretty traumatized. And watching them with animals, watching them picking vegetables and eating them out of the garden, watching them try new foods and, you know, develop a certain pride in their confidence. We had a 7- and 8-year-old boy who'd had some really horrible things happen to them, and they were very, very angry and very sad in a lot of ways when they came to us. But watching how overjoyed they were when they learned to feed calves and collect eggs and be part of it and help us, and, you know, they helped us bake cookies and make dinner for the first time. These are things that had never been part of their lives. And, you know, it was remarkable to me watching how, how deeply healing these things are to kids. It's not just that it's a better quality of life. On some level, they provide a need that I think the kids didn't even know they had. When it comes to living on a farm, and it's interesting how many people have this vision of leaving in the city environment and moving out to the country. Uh, if you have any advice at all to give them, what would you encourage them to do? Collaborate with other people. That would be the first thing. I mean, besides do it, because it's wonderful if you really want to do it. Um, but also collaborate with other people. I mean, land is expensive, housing is expensive, wherever you live it's going to be expensive. And if this is this should be a resource that's available not just to rich people, not just, you know, to people who've already established themselves, but to young families who want this. So it's going to have to be collaborative. Um, God's not making any more land, um, you know, and housing prices, despite the crash, are not that cheap. So when we did this, we moved with my husband's grandparents. Um, they were getting too old to live independently, and they wanted to stay in their home, and we wanted to make sure that that was possible for them. And we weren't really in a position to put in a down payment at that point, and so we worked together, and it was a really wonderful gift for all of us, I think. Um, it was a blessing for everybody, and I think that's maybe the most important thing is to find other people to collaborate with because otherwise I think a lot of people get trapped in the cities, they get trapped because their job's there, they get trapped because they can't make it work. Well, the nuclear family is something that was created by in the industri industrial society, and it's mm -hmm. not necessarily something, I think, with a long-term future for most of us. A lot of us have a hard time getting by, 
and moving to the country is just one way that that happens. So I think it has to be collaborative. It has to be communal as much as possible. We have to work together with other people. Can you talk about some of the experiences that you've had living on the farm, especially just omitting certain modern conveniences from everyday life and what that's like, especially to people that can't possibly imagine what it's like not to have all the different electronic gadgets and whatnot, uh, all the different conveniences that they're accustomed to. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting, particularly like as I've had more kids, everybody keeps saying at some point you're going to have to get a dryer. And I'm still, you know, haven't hit that critical moment. Where, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, and it's one of those things where, you know, believe it or not, the sun will still do this job for me. Even in upstate New York, we hang it indoors in the winter. Um, I don't have a dryer. Um, we do not use um, a refrigerator. We do have a freezer, and we freeze bottles of ice to keep food cool um, during the summer. In the winter, we use natural refrigeration. Um, we use natural refrigeration to keep things cool. But we really have been able to get along with a lot fewer appliances than most people. Um, I had a dishwasher for a little while, but I never really liked how it got the dishes clean, and now I have a 10-year-old <laughs> and, and myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't make him do all the slave labor. <laughs> so it's really not been, you know, it's funny to me how much people feel these things are necessary to their life and how really often I find that these things don't save a lot of labor. It's amazing how humbling when life can be, especially when you think about the quality of your life, how it's enriched by not having some of these conveniences that we seem to cling to. Uh, Sharon, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been wonderful talking to you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, everyone.